What are the eight limbs of yoga? To a yoga advocate, a Hindu, or a New Ager, this is a very important concept because supposedly those eight limbs or eight steps lead to enlightenment or God consciousness. Is there any agreement with the Bible? Are there any areas of commonality? And what about the contradictions? Find out on this episode of Revealing the True Light. There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar? And how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. What are the eight limbs of yoga? This is going to occupy our attention during this podcast because it's something very important to Hindus, to yoga devotees, to people who embrace New Age spirituality. Why? Because supposedly these eight limbs or eight steps lead to this elusive goal, this lofty goal of God consciousness, which has a lot of other names like self-realization, Christ consciousness, or enlightenment. And so that's certainly something that sounds attractive, sounds desirable, and many people apply these eight rules, these eight limbs, these eight steps to their lives in the hope of achieving that goal. And we're going to explore not only the uh, definition of the eight limbs, but how they correlate to biblical revelation, where there are areas of commonality, where there are contradictions, whether or not these two belief systems can be merged in any way, or if they are so completely different, there's no blending them together. All of this is really important because these eight steps lead to an ultimate state, according to Hindu teaching, called samadhi. And samadhi is oneness with God and oneness with the universe, the highest state or consciousness that a human being can achieve. And when that happens, according to Hindu teaching, a person is released from the cycle of rebirths, referred to as moksha or liberation, a very, very desirable goal. Now, of course, in Christianity, we don't embrace the idea of reincarnation, it is not compatible with biblical revelation. We believe in one life, and after that, our destiny is determined one way or the other. But in Hinduism, uh, a person can be reincarnated over a million times on this journey to ultimate realization of destiny and, and being. So let's explore this right now. Who brought out this idea to begin with of eight limbs of yoga? It's Patanjali, who was considered a Hindu sage who lived somewhere between 150 and 200 BC, prior to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the first one to codify and categorize the practice of yoga in all its many facets. It was practiced before then, there were people involved in yoga in very uh, deep commitment prior to that time, but he was the first one to really organize the whole 
belief system. And he wrote something called the Yoga Sutras. And those are pithy, wise uh, principles that are given concerning these eight limbs. There's 196 sutras in the Yoga Sutras. And it's almost like a yogi's Bible. They go by the Yoga Sutras because they want to reach this ultimate goal of moksha, liberation from the cycle of rebirth, and samadhi, ultimate enlightenment, which are words that sound very desirable, words that sound to a person that hasn't had an encounter with the true and the living God, something worth sacrificing everything to attain. I know I did. Back in 1970, when I first heard these principles, I gave up everything. I dropped out of college to study under an Indian guru, and I spent 14 hours a day in solitude, week after week, month after month, in order to achieve these higher states. And of course, I finally had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ that changed everything, but I still want people to understand this belief system for two reasons, so that you can communicate it to others who may embrace this point of view so that you can communicate the gospel, or if you happen to be a person who embraces this point of view, I want you to hear the biblical response to it. So what are the eight limbs of yoga? Let me just name them and define them very concisely, and then we'll come back and give a more in-depth explanation. Number one is yama, and yama refers to restraints or moral disciplines that a person places upon himself in his pursuit of higher consciousness. Number two is niyama, and niyama has to do with observances, uh, your worshipful journey, and how you would commit yourself to certain religious principles, religious practices, positive duties that you fulfill in your journey as a yoga devotee. Number three is asanas, which are the yoga postures. That's what most Westerners are familiar with. And many people think that you can divorce the asanas or the yoga postures from the rest of this eight-limb series of steps that lead to this goal of samadhi. But I contend that there's no way you can separate the two. In fact, I have an article on the truelight.net about 10 yoga postures that offer worship to Hindu deities. And when you really go into the depth of what each posture means, it's inseparable from Hinduism and from their pantheon of gods and goddesses. But uh, we'll get into that more in a different episode. Number four is pranayama, which are the breathing exercises. That's the fourth in this series of limbs or steps. It's considered very, very important. Number five, is pratyahara, which is sense withdrawal. In other words, becoming a very inward person, not controlled by the five senses, what you see, what you hear, what you taste, what you smell, what you touch. Most human beings are completely controlled by their senses, driven by the desire to gratify their senses. But this is a necessary step to withdraw from their control according to yogic teaching. And then dharana is focused concentration. That's number six. 
Dhyana or Dhyana is meditative absorption, being absorbed into the depth of meditation. That's number seven. But meditation in Far Eastern religions means something totally different than biblical meditation. In fact, I've done teachings on that. I've got an article on that on the truelight.net. And if you want to go into that in more detail, I would urge you to do so. I clearly show the difference between biblical meditation and Far Eastern meditation. And then finally, number eight is samadhi, bliss, ultimate bliss, according to their teaching. I believe I experienced what I could call ultimate bliss the day I was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's a completely different approach, where in yoga, the whole idea is looking within because there's a spark of divinity within you that needs to be awakened. But the biblical approach is that God is outside of human beings. He exists apart from physical creation. And once you go through the door and Jesus said, I am the door, then the Spirit of God enters into you. And there's no more joyous experience to be had. I had supernatural experiences when I was a yoga devotee. I felt what seemed like a very supernatural peace and a supernatural contentment, a supernatural joy or happiness. But none of those experiences could compare in any way with the experience I've had once I made Jesus Lord of my life. Now let's go through those eight limbs of yoga in a little bit more detail. I think it's somewhat interesting, intriguing, and insightful that Buddha had the noble eightfold path. It's much different than these eight limbs, but he had eight steps that lead to nirvana, which is a different kind of concept of an ultimate state than samadhi. But uh, they both approach it with eight steps, Patanjali and Buddha. Now, what is number one? The yamas or the restraints, the moral disciplines that a person places upon himself in order to become a devoted person pursuing this goal of enlightenment. There are ethical precepts that a person constrains himself with. Number one is ahimsa, which is nonviolence. And that's also celebrated in Jainism. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi was very committed to ahimsa and won the independence of India with nonviolent means, inspiring Martin Luther King later on to do something similar in the United States concerning the races and the equality of the races. So I see value in that, and that equates to Jesus' beatitude statement, eight beatitudes, and one of them is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. In other words, they will reflect the nature of the Heavenly Father expressed within his children when they have this ability to fill a violent world with peace. Ahimsa is what the yogis call it, non-harm or non-violence, not harming any human being, not harming animals, most would agree it includes vegetarianism, which I no longer believe is necessary to achieve enlightenment. Number two, the second yama is satya, which means a commitment to truthfulness, 
a passion to always tell the truth, to always be honest, to always be a person of integrity. Well, that connects with one of the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And the Holy Spirit in the Bible is called the Spirit of Truth. And the Bible itself is called the Word of Truth. And God encourages his people to be truthful people. In fact, we are referred to, the church in the New Testament is referred to as the pillar and ground of the truth. And the Bible says the devil is a liar and the father of all lies. So the closer you get to God, the more you become a truth teller. So there is a certain dovetailing of the biblical view and this particular view of uh, Patanjali in the eight limbs of yoga. That's sacha, a commitment to truthfulness. And then asteya is non-stealing, or that's the way they uh, express it as non-stealing. Well, that fits in with the biblical revelation because uh, isn't that one of the commandments? Thou shalt not steal. And over and over in different ways of expressing it, the Bible not only encourages us, but commands us never to take that which is not our own. And uh, that applies to a lot of different things, not just taking physical uh, things that belong to someone else. So there's an agreement there. And then there's brahmacharya, which is sense control. That's number four. The fourth yama is sense control. And it specifically means control of your sexuality. And the Bible is full of that. The Bible teaches against fornication, against homosexuality and lesbianism, against any kind of perverse sexual behavior, and confines it only to a man and a woman in marriage. Now, I'm sure uh, in yogic philosophy, it doesn't have exactly the same parameters that the Bible does, but still it talks about controlling sexual expression in a person's life. Of course, there are some aspects of yoga, like tantric yoga, that even indulge in sexual expression on the journey to, quote-unquote, enlightenment. But that's another podcast altogether. And then there's aparigraha, which is non-hoarding or non-covetousness. So number five is, in essence, don't be a greedy person. Don't hoard things greedily that you should be giving away to those in need. Or don't covet things unnecessarily that you don't really need. And that's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. So in the yamas or the restraints, we see a real connection between the Bible and this Far Eastern philosophy. And I'm going to explain why after we go into the niyamas. That's the next category. Niyamas are duties or observances religiously on your journey to hopeful enlightenment in Eastern practices. There's five of those too. And number one is saucha. And saucha means cultivating purity inwardly and externally, outwardly and inwardly being a pure person. Well, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Purity is important. Santosha is number two, and that's being content with your present state. 
When people have a lot of discontent, when they're never grateful, never thankful, everything is bad, something's always wrong with their environment or what they're going through, you can't progress spiritually. And that's number two of the niyamas. So there's a connection there. We need to appreciate what we have right now on our journey to possessing what we want, even spiritually. Contentment, well, the Bible is very plain in saying we should cultivate that mindset. Then number three is tapas, which is self-discipline. And that means cultivating uh, acts of willpower in order to subdue the flesh and focus on the goal that you've set before you. And of course, the Bible teaches all kinds of self-disciplines, including fasting, which is a necessary part of being a Christian. Because Jesus said, not if you fast, he said, when you fast, don't do it like the religious people he was comparing his teachings to. And then number four is svadhyaya, which is the practice of self-study reflecting on your actions and your reactions, reflecting on your motivations and reason for doing things. Is it pride or is it humility? Is it selfishness or is it selflessness motivating you to go after certain goals in your life? And that's the number four, niyama, is studying yourself inwardly in order to uh, get loose from the things that are negatives in your life and to grow and to mature. And then finally, the number five niyama is Ishvara Pranidhana. And that is practicing a state of devotion. This is a very important one because it's practicing a state of devotion, surrendering all the fruits of your practice. If you're a yoga devotee, your yoga practice to a higher source or a, listen to this, quote-unquote, chosen deity, or the universal consciousness, which some yoga devotees think is ultimate reality. And universal consciousness is just an impersonal life force. Now, not all Hindus believe that on an ultimate level, you'll find an impersonal life force, but many do. It's, it's kind of divided between those that believe God is a personal God, and, and they have a dualistic view where God and souls are distinct from one another. And then you have Hindus that believe in monism, that uh, do not believe there's a separateness or a distinction between God and the human soul, that you are God. And part of enlightenment is coming to the realization that you are, on an ultimate level, absolutely one with God to the point that you are God, which is, I believe, the height of deception, the pinnacle of self-delusion, because you will never become God, no matter, uh, no matter what kind of practice you indulge in. Now, let's go into the rest of the limbs. And I don't want to take a lot of time on these because I've explained them on other episodes. But number three is asanas, which are the physical exercises. Now, all those physical exercises are designed to open up something that Hindus call the chakras, which are supposed to be seven whirling energy centers in the body. And the one most people are familiar with is the third eye, which is number six, and then the crown chakra is number seven. And so these physical exercises are supposed to 
push you forward to the awakening of these, uh, the kundalini, which is the serpent power at the base of the spine and the activation of all the chakras, the alignment of all the chakras. I know this sounds like weird terminology to people that are unfamiliar with it, but it's something to learn so you can be a conversationalist if you don't embrace this worldview. And then once that happens, you achieve God consciousness. Well, I don't believe you can work your way through physical asanas or exercises into an awareness of God. It comes through repentance. It comes through faith in God's plan of salvation for the human race. Then number four is pranayama. And pranayama uh, involves the breathing exercises. And they believe those are important because they believe that the air is impregnated with prana, which are the infinitesimal little sparks of divine life, so to speak. And that as you breathe in a very controlled way, you're taking in this divine life and heightening your consciousness in the process. But I have an acrostic for yoga I use quite often. Y-O-G-A. You only get air. You cannot breathe your way into a relationship with God. Right. Okay, number five is pratyahara, which is sense withdrawal, withdrawing yourself from the control of the senses. Now, I don't have a problem with that until it makes you a very isolated person, where you withdraw from the world to the point where you're not interacting with people. I could very easily have been subject uh, a person who subjected myself to that and lived in a cave the rest of my life over in India. Uh, trying to achieve this elusive goal of God consciousness had not God intervened in my life. And so Jesus instituted a religion that's all about pouring your life into the lives of others. And so, yes, there's a certain point where you present your body a living sacrifice on the altar and you withdraw from the control of the senses, but not to the point where you become isolated from others and you're no earthly good. I know people say you can be so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, you can also be so earthly minded, you're no heavenly good. There's got to be a blend between the two. And then dharana is, uh, or dharana rather, is focused concentration. Now you're getting into uh, occultic formulas that are supposed to enable you to achieve these higher states of consciousness through very detailed processes, meditative processes, which again are a a departure from the biblical way of doing things. Dhyana is the next step. That's number seven, which is being absorbed in meditation. It involves hours and hours and hours of meditating, sometimes in complete silence, sometimes chanting mantras, sometimes looking at yantras, sometimes... um, sometimes uh, just emptying your mind so that you enter the silence, which is uh, not the approach that God designs for us. He said we should enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. Uh, The final thing is samadhi, and samadhi is that supposed door to ultimate consciousness that uh, brings you into oneness with God. No, the door to ultimate consciousness is being born again, receiving Jesus into your heart, receiving the gift of eternal life. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. 
Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.